welcome to the Somerset Emotional Wellbeing Podcast. My name is Dr. Andrew Trasilla for Somerset Clinical Commissioning Group, and I'm joined by my friend and colleague, Peter Bagshaw, GP and CCG uh, Mental Health Clinical Lead. And we're really pleased to welcome today our guest, Debbie Wint from Somerset Foundation Trust. And our topic is suicide prevention in the context of World Suicide Prevention Day 2021. Welcome, Debbie. Hello, thank you. Um, Debbie, tell us a little bit about the job you do and how you came to do it, please. Okay, so um, I've been working in Somerset for about 17 years now, and I was working as a clinical psychologist in community mental health services over all that time and before that in Oxfordshire. And during that time, I've worked fairly consistently with people who are experiencing suicidal thoughts and are having mental health difficulties and um, and have been interested in suicide prevention all that time. Um, and this role came up and I was very lucky to have been um, offered it and I'm very much enjoying that new challenge. I've been in post since um, earlier in this, this year. Debbie, each year there's a... Um a theme to the suicide prevention uh, day is there a particular theme this year yes so this year uh, the theme is about creating hope through action um which is something that people are focusing all across so it's an international world suicide prevention day and people are thinking about what our hope might be um, and specifically i suppose my hope is that by talking about suicide in podcasts such as this that we might help people be more aware um of this issue and also how to access support when they need it. Thank you. In in my experience, um, suicide happens in, in two contexts, really. One is in the context of severe mental illness, which is untreated, whether that's schizophrenia or severe depression. But also, you don't have to be mentally unwell to be suicidal. It can, it can happen to any of us at a time when we feel desperate, when we're in emotional crisis. Uh, is that a fair comment about the, 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 the scenarios that we could find ourselves in? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's perhaps a, a sort of misunderstanding around um, suicide. Suicide is actually that a very high proportion of people who sadly do die by suicide aren't being seen by mental health services and haven't presented uh, with mental health difficulties. So we only really see about 25% of the people who die actually are open to mental health services and the rest haven't been seen in the past. And I've read figures that about one in five of us will have suicidal thoughts at some time in our lives. Is, is that a figure you'd agree with or do you think it's too high? To be honest, I mean, it's quite challenging. I'd almost wonder whether that's a bit low um, because perhaps people find it difficult to talk about them. And, you know, and there's an awful lot of shame about talking about suicidal thoughts. So in my experience, I'd probably suggest it might even be higher than that. The theme is hope through action. So what sort of action should we be taking? Well, I think there are a number of things, um, certainly about awareness, promoting awareness so that people are perhaps less um, are more aware of suicide being a normal thing, suicidal thoughts being normal, and actually perhaps not being quite so alarmed by them when they happen. So promoting the services that are available, because you know there are a lot of services out there that can help people, um, but also normalising it so that people don't feel quite so alarmed when they find themselves feeling desperate. Because I think there's a secondary process. There's all the reasons why people feel low and desperate in the first place. And then there's a secondary fear, I think, 
based on stigmatization, I guess, of mental health problems, that that must mean something dreadful about them or that they're letting the side down or perhaps they're they're failing in some way. So there's something about normalizing it so people don't feel quite so alone and so frightened when that happens to them. Thank you. You mentioned stigma, which is leads into shame because people self-stigmatize. They feel that they're doing something wrong in themselves and they feel ashamed. And that is that a barrier to accessing help? I, I suspect it may well be. And I, I suppose I'm not familiar with the literature about that. But my sense is, often if you speak to other people, and if you reflect on your own experience, you're somebody who's used to being strong, who's used to coping. Perhaps, you know, if you feel like you need to be the head of the household, then when you find yourself struggling with those kind of thoughts and feelings, I think probably there is quite a lot of self-criticism and shame that comes in that makes it difficult perhaps to admit or talk about. Many of us have been touched by suicide personally and and certainly professionally, and it it is a difficult thing because um, any of us touched by it will go through the phases of grief, the phases of loss, uh, the what-ifs and the if-onlys, if only I'd done such and such, what if I'd so-and-so, if only so-and-so had helped. Um, And so an an understanding of that, those phases are are quite important because otherwise we get caught up in our own what-ifs and if-onlys and and the anger and guilt that's uh, that can go around um, about uh, these issues. So for any of our listeners who are touched um, by any of the issues that we bring up, we will be giving some help numbers uh, at the end. In fact, we'll give one now. The Samaritans, everybody should know this number, uh, 116123, uh, which is free from mobiles in the UK, uh, or you can text SHOUT to 85258, uh, and the Samaritans are always there available to help listen. But thinking about suicide generally, there are a number of myths about suicide, uh, Debbie. Um, can you tell us about some of those myths? I mean, wh- one of them is, you know, if, 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 if you're thinking about it, well, you know, uh, of course you're going to take your life and so it's not worth, worth helping you. I mean, that's, that's, that's rubbish, isn't it? Because mm. we can all feel desperate at times. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I think the challenge is that when people feel very desperate, they can find themselves in a bit of a tunnel. So it's very easy to start feeling very hopeless and feel as though there isn't any help out there. Um, and often that, I think, probably prevents people from asking for support. But actually, you know, I suppose I've got lived experience of that in terms of working with other people and actually having my own difficulties through my life, that I know that things can change and do change for people. And I've certainly been privileged, I think, to be able to support people through that journey out the other side to a point where they do feel like life's worth living again. Another myth or concern that a lot of people have is that just talking about suicide, uh, which is one of the actions that you said at the beginning, might trigger somebody who's thinking about it to actually uh, uh, to actually go ahead with suicide. Is, is that something that you can dispel as a myth? Absolutely. Absolutely. But I think it's such a pervasive myth. And, you know, I think even within professionals, you know, certainly in my career, when I was taught at the beginning to ask people whether they had suicidal thoughts, I felt really uncomfortable, felt really scary as though somehow it was a suggestion rather than a question. So I think that is it's really common for us to to feel in that way. But actually, the evidence is that, in fact, it doesn't put that kind of idea into people's minds. And in fact, people are often very relieved when you've 
asked about it. And people certainly don't find it very easy to venture. So it's much easier to respond if somebody asks you directly than it perhaps is to venture that yourself and to actually say that out loud. Thank you. I heard a formula that, that can help, which is, you know, sometimes people who very feel very sad or or, or upset feel low, um, and perhaps the other person might agree. Perhaps sometimes they might feel that life is not worth living. Has this ever happened to you? And that, that may be a way of, of being able to start asking the question rather than coming out with rather a, a blunt um, question. Absolutely. I think that there are ways of phrasing things. And, you know, sometimes, you know, uh, people ask in, in difficult ways because they're frightened themselves. So they, you know, you hear of families sometimes where they might say to somebody, you think about doing anything silly or not going to do that, are you? And I think there is something about asking in a way that in that enables somebody to speak openly in a compassionate way, perhaps gently, so that people feel encouraged to speak rather than feeling criticised or, you know, or judged in some way. And there is still this stigma, isn't there, around the language we use. We talk about committing suicide as though it's a criminal act, which, of course, it was in the past. Do we have to be careful around language? Are there, are there particular phrases you think we should use and particular ones we should try and not use? Absolutely. I mean, the committed suicide is something that we really do try and discourage. Um, and actually, so we tend to prefer to talk about people who've died of suicide or taken their own life or died by suicide so that there isn't that sort of criticism or judgment. We're, we're talking about a, a really difficult topic, um, but just to put it in context, um, as we said at the start, one in five or one in four people have had suicidal thoughts. And when it comes to risk, there, there was a phase for labelling people as high risk or low risk. Uh, and this has been shown... Uh, perhaps you can correct me, Debbie, but this has been shown not necessarily to be very helpful because people who are labelled as high risk, actually only one in 20 in a lifetime actually died of suicide, whereas over 50% of people who, who had died were thought to be, to be low risk. So actually, it's almost not worth categorising because we just have to meet everybody where they are at that particular point. Yes, absolutely. And I, I think that what that means really is that we need to take every account everybody's experience seriously so when people say they're feeling suicidal we really need to listen and we really need to make sure that those people can access the support that they need at the time that they need it talking of uh, risk factors we know that about three in four people uh, who end their life through suicide are male do we know the reasons behind this is it because men are less good at talking about their feelings or is that oversimplifying things? Well, it's a really big question and I wish we knew more about that. Um, you know, I think that there have been a lot of studies looking at the factors. There's been a recent study by ENKISH, which is National Confidential Inquiry, that talks about the risk factors for men. And, you know, I think any um, analysis of why people die by suicide is, is complex, it's multifaceted. So there are a number of factors that may account for why there's this group of people is higher rep you know there's a higher representation of men it may be to do with social factors it may be to do with their you know upbringing the way that men are socialized into not talking about emotions maybe something about help seeking maybe something about stigma we we really don't know and i'd really love to hear from men about how we could reach out and 
offer them services or offer them help in a way that's more accessible to them. I know a number of studies have actually, or services have actually tried to do that. And to me, it it, it seems that sometimes the, the logical mind, and I'm, um, that can be the more sort of problem-seeking, left-sided uh, aspect of our, our brain, um, finds answers to problems. Uh, and it may occasionally happen that the logical answer to the overwhelming problems one seems to find uh, are actually is actually to do something desperate. But that's because the logic is not is is sitting on top of of distressed feelings. And when the feelings are sorted out, when they're met compassionately, when they are resolved, then the logic can take a completely different different approach. Yeah, and I think that certainly. Um, some people observe, and I, I probably agree with that, that often people don't actually want to die. They're, they're suffering with extreme distress, fear, worries, things that are very practical and difficult to manage. And so it's actually an end to that distress, really, rather than um, actually a desire to die per se that motivates people to take those steps. So acknowledging that this is a, a difficult area that a lot of people feel uncomfortable about, if somebody is aware of somebody in their family or circle of friends who they think may be suicidal, may, may be having those dark thoughts, what practical action would you suggest they take? I've, I've read somewhere that the main thing that you can do is actually to say, I'll contact you in so many days or this time next week, just so that that person has a, a future contact. It, it, is that useful? And are there other things that you can suggest? Well, that would always be useful in terms of making sure that people feel like they're not alone and there's somebody looking out for them. And I think that feeling cared about and that sort of sense of compassion from others is really, really important. But in addition, I'd probably recommend that people give people a number of options, including coming and talking to their GP or ringing Mindline. And, you know, perhaps people don't realise that if you ring Mindline, Mindline do have the capacity to introduce people to other aspects of our mental health service in Somerset. So that would be a, a good way to get people supported. And if people are really worried about people, they should approach our home treatment teams or they should look at crisis provision. And I probably need to think about how we say that. I haven't said that very well. But, um, oh, that's very helpful, actually, Debbie. Uh, Mindline's number is 01823 276 892. That's uh, Mindline in Somerset, which is open uh, 24-7. And it's, as you so rightly say, there are a number of routes to help. Um, one could go to the emergency department. One could call 999. One can call Mindline. One can contact one's GP. Contact a friend. Um, speak to the Samaritans, 116-123, or, or text them. Mm. and many others. Debbie? Yeah, I think one of the things I've noticed that sometimes people find really difficult to do is pick up the phone in those kind of situations. It can be really hard to start that conversation. And certainly I've been aware of the shout text helpline, which actually just involves you te texting to a number and somebody will come back to you and they'll speak to you for a little while. And I think I've known people who found that really helpful, perhaps if they're in a difficult situation, if they're somewhere where they don't feel like they can speak out loud. Um, they can be a very helpful support. And certainly in terms of perhaps getting people through periods of distress when they're in crisis and they might need some support just sh short term to get them to the next stage to think about what they need to do. 
and you can also um, email joe at jo at samaritans.org um, if you're finding it difficult to to ask we talked about people who maybe have long-term uh, thoughts of depression or, or not wanting to continue going into crisis are there ways that they can maybe preempt that and, and keep themselves uh, safer if they enter those crises? I'm, I'm thinking of, of safety plans that are, uh, are used. Is that a, a useful tool? And if so, how do we how do we do that? Well, I definitely think that's a useful tool. And often, I think when people find themselves in those places, it's really difficult to think at that moment what needs to happen what they need to do next but if they've got some experience if you've got experience of regularly having those kind of thoughts you can work through a safety plan either with somebody that you're working with in mental health services or on your own um, and that takes you through a number of steps of what to do immediately right this minute um, and gives you a list of professional uh, agencies that you could access so those steps it's really useful to have those steps written down so that you can actually call upon them in crisis and I know that um, there are a number of ways of doing that uh, we certainly recommend an app called stay alive which you can have on your smartphone which takes you through, through a few steps in terms of having a, a safety plan but also you can put um, pictures and things that you find comforting that help you remember reasons for living and there's some other exercises in terms of breathing and sort of um, relaxation exercises in there so it is a really good idea to think about a safety plan for sure so staying alive is one and there's another one called stayingsafe.net which i have I think has similar things and I, I do some teaching to doctors at times on well-being and uh, I, I would ask them um how many thousand miles have you driven in the last 10 years and you know lots how many uh, i'm assuming that you all wear safety belts and uh, i i don't look for anybody um, to to name and shame but uh, um and so how many how many seconds or minutes has that safety belt actually been useful in that last 10 years or that hundred thousand miles and the answer is not very often we should all do a safety plan when we're well we don't have to wait until we're in crisis to do one so i would i would recommend all our listeners to have a look at the staying alive uh, or the stay alive app or the staying safe.net have a look at it and um, fill one out for yourself and you never know you might know somebody else that you could encourage to do it uh, to do as well because if we've sorted it out when we're in in a good place then we know what to do if we if we're not in such a good place and certainly from professional experience when i'm talking to people that one of the main protective factors that will stop people taking action is thinking about children or relatives especially grandchildren and the effect on them. Conversely, some people will say, well, I feel I'm being a burden to my relatives and I'd be better out of the way. Um, as professionals, we know that that's definitely not the case. Could you say a little bit about that, Debbie? Well, I think you're right to identify that as a warning sign. And I suppose I would say to people, if you notice yourself thinking in that way, number one, start thinking that's the time to be worried. Um, but also try and get support during that time because that perspective does change and it really mu very much is a feature of sort of, of the tunnel that people find themselves in when they're feeling suicidal despair. So that perspective can change very rapidly and I would definitely identify that as a warning sign. That's really helpful. And one of the questions that I've used sometimes when, when I've teased out um, the fact that somebody really doesn't want to live um, is so you don't want to wake up or you don't really want to be here 
you don't want to be here now. Do you want to be here in a week's time or a month's time? And it's very interesting. Sometimes you'll get a very different question, answer, which will help you identify that it's a crisis. But I think we must all be alert to severe mental illness. And I'm thinking of psychosis and particularly psychotic depression or severe depression where people have uh, delusions, um, fixed thoughts that that um, they are worthless, that um, that life is not worth living, that something awful is going to happen, and, and people in this this level of crisis really do need urgent medical attention and medical help. And I, and I have to say, um, I remember as a houseman uh, many years ago, uh, somebody who's several people whose life was saved by ECT, who were actually suicidal and. Perhaps we used ECT 30 years ago more than we should now, but for cases of psychotic depression, it is the life-saving treatment that works rapidly. Uh, and that may sound a bit strange to our listeners because they may know me, me uh, may, may know Andrew as, as the person who's interested in uh, uh, complementary approaches as well as uh, as well as the regular medical. But they it really can be life-saving or appropriate treatment, of course, for a, a lesser depression with antidepressants. Antidepressants are really helpful to treat depression and untreated depression can certainly lead us into suicidality. Debbie, um, you've, you've um, mentioned, uh, you, you brought our attention to a book called by Rory O'Connor called When It Is Darkest. What's, what's, um, what's caught your eye in that book? Well, I've been really impressed with this book actually, because I think what what Rory does really well is he's a professor in health psychology at the University of Glasgow, and he's been researching suicide and suicide prevention for many years, 25 years, I think, at least. And what he does, he writes about his own personal experience. So he's been briefed by suicide himself. And he also talks quite candidly about his own experience of having suicidal thoughts. And he speaks to a to a number of agendas. So I, I think it's the kind of book which is incredibly helpful for professionals because he summarises the research in a lot of detail in a very accessible way, but actually writes it in such a way that I think it, it really would help people who've been briefed by suicide to try and understand. It talks about helping people. It looks talks about interventions. It's, it really is a very sort of comprehensive book, but written in a very personable human way. Thank you. So that's Rory O'Connor when it is darkest and in somerset we have our somerset suicide bereavement support service for anyone who's who's uh, been bereaved by suicide which is 0300 330 uh, and we'll put that in the program notes as well and on the question of bereavement by suicide bereavement anyway is a very difficult thing to deal with probably the most difficult thing that we have to, to go through in life but Certainly my experience of people who've been bereaved uh, by suicide is that there's another layer of difficulty and pain and anguish and guilt and all sorts of other hard feelings on top of the normal bereavement. Is, is that your experience, Debbie? And if so, how can people deal with that? I think it's, you're absolutely right. I think it is a really um, particularly difficult experience for people to go through and move forward with and I remember there was a book years ago that I read when I'd first experienced suicide bereavement in my professional life which is called a special scar and I think that really sums it up I think the important thing is for people to access help as soon as they can or you know for people to be made aware of the services as soon as possible but also to know that that journey you know, takes a number of twists and turns and they might need to seek help later. 
and you know and have some support from others to really help them understand suicide is really difficult because it's very difficult to predict who might die sometimes you know in hindsight there are some small signs that perhaps we didn't understand at the time but that can be difficult and people people can often be really tortured by that as you said the what-ifs and the guilt unnecessarily so but you know understandably so Perhaps one of the antidotes is is hope and speaking to to colleagues and professionals about uh, about this difficult subject. Sometimes when I've been training, I've 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 asked looked around the room and said, every single one of you, every single one of you will never know how many people you have helped from desperation and maybe lives that you have saved, because. Human beings are social creatures, um, and we don't have to be in crisis to want to to feel better. Uh, and the more we uh, interact, the more we give hope, the more we say "see you next week," or or um, um, that, that those just those little supportive comments uh, can be make all the difference. And we will never know what we've prevented. A bit like wearing a safety belt. And coming back to that analogy, we a lot of us have learned CPR and will try and save lives in that way. And there is a, a, a point of view, isn't there, that we should all learn that mental health training so that we can recognise the signs of people who are at risk of suicide and intervene. And that's something positive that we can do. On the question of being positive, perhaps we should talk about uh, the, the 10th of September, World Suicide Prevention Day. Is that something you want to, uh, to tell us about, Debbie? Yes. Um, so within Somerset, there are a number of activities and um, events. And I know that our Somerset Suicide Bereavement Support Service are providing a, a running a, a service for people who've been bereaved by suicide in Bridgewater. And um, within SFT, within Somerset Foundation Trust, we're, um, we've developed a, a number of blogs. We're actually trying to share some stories of hope because I think, you know, the important thing is for us to remember that many people who have suicidal thoughts actually do receive the support they need and find their way to some degree of recovery and you know and, and can feel better. And I've been really lucky that a, a couple of people that I work with have given me some of those stories that I'll be able to share on our website on World Suicide Prevention Day. Thank you. So it's on the 10th of September. The theme is creating hope through action, and lots of organisations are taking part. And people can visit www.iasp.info for, for more information. And the two big activities happening on the day are Cycle Around the Globe and Light a Candle. That's right. Yeah, so people can join in with those. We're also doing a Twitter campaign called Hands of Hope. So we're encouraging people to design um, a template with a picture of a hand um, reaching out, with which will be coloured with messages and words of hope or a pledge for what they would like to do to try and support this agenda and what they might personally do to try and help with suicide awareness and suicide prevention. And we'll be tweeting that on hashtag WSPD and hashtag Somerset Hope in the week leading up to World Suicide Prevention Day. That's great. Thank you. And from our colleague Louise, there are some suggested online training options, and we're hoping at least 100 people in Somerset take the 30 minutes online training. Let's talk about suicide, which is free online training. And we'll put the link to that in the in the programme notes on the on the website uh, on healthysomerset.co.uk. 
so that's the let's talk about suicide training. Just to say about that, the number of people that have undertaken that training that I've spoken to have found it incredibly helpful and very simple, but incredibly informative. So I think it really would, you know, does go very much recommended. One of the um, perhaps ways of looking at an overview, a healing resolution for people in suicidal crisis might be um, these steps. Um, Connect with compassion and treat mental illness if it's there, but find support initiate hope and kindle hope uh, and continue that support because as we've been talking about earlier and you've helped us debbie the barriers to seeking help are loss of perspective hopelessness shame loss of face pride and, and loss of insight and that medicine which isn't prescribable on an fp10 and you and i can't dole it out in pill form peter i wish we could is hope it's so powerful because suicidal crisis is a is a temporary state and it will pass and things will improve uh, and so it's just so important for us to to help help each other to help others at a time of crisis to help them move past that that's certainly one of the joys of general practice is that you see people over a number of years and you and I will both have seen people who've completely lost hope and feel that there's no point going on, that they'll always feel this way. Things will never be brighter. And if we can get them through that time of crisis, then we see them emerge the other end where life becomes worth living again. And I think it's really important to stress that, that this is a temporary thing. This loss of perspective and feelings of hopelessness is something that will pass. Uh, Debbie, is there anything that you'd like to share with us, Um, something that somebody shared with you that could be useful to our listeners? Absolutely. I think I'd really like to share some words that somebody has sent me just recently when we were trying to collect some stories of hope. So this person wrote to me and said, just over a year ago, I was in a mess. Years of mental anguish were about to culminate in a trial for historic abuse. I was suicidal. I was scared to go out alone. I could barely look after myself and my children. And I had self-harm difficulties and was on the verge of an admission to an inpatient ward. After the admission, I felt ready to work with a therapist who listened to me. And for the first time, I felt understood and believed. She helped me overcome some of my difficulties. And a year later, I'm in a completely different place. I still have the odd bad day, but I rarely feel alone or afraid now. I joined the recovery college. I did some courses and met some lovely people. And for so long, I'd say I was felt like I was in the darkest place and couldn't see who I was meant to be. Now my family have me back, and that's the greatest gift we could have given them. And how fantastic to round off what's a difficult topic to, to discuss with a message of hope. Yeah, thank you. I'd like to thank the recovery partner that shared that information with me and gave permission for me to use it today. Thank you very much, Debbie. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Um, And remember, if you have been touched by any aspects of this presentation, please find help for yourself. Please find a friend, a colleague, support, professional help, or the Samaritans, 116123, or text SHOUT to 82528, and go well. You've been listening to the Somerset Emotional Wellbeing Podcast. Hosted by Dr. Andrew Tresider and Dr. Peter Bagshaw. The show was created by David Seeley and was produced by Rob Hunt's Music on behalf of the Somerset Clinical Commissioning Group. <laughs>